Well, good evening. Wednesday night. You know, you, you know on Sunday morning and Sunday night, you think, wow, all week. And uh, then it's Wednesday night, and you think, where'd it go? And, uh, and, and what's, what's, what's next? Um, it's, it's Malachi next year. So uh, just chew on that for a bit. We, we don't have to worry, but we still have some work to do in 2 Corinthians. So I appreciate, uh, once again, uh, the invitation uh, from Owen, and I appreciate your kindness always. And uh, Owen and Amanda are not the only alums or folks I've had in class who here. Courtney was my student. What's your, <laughs> Courtney was my student. Uh, how long you been here, Courtney? Almost four. So I had Courtney. She was a fine student at o- OVU. Now you were, I can't, I'm not good, but you were after Owen and Amanda, but not by much. Kind of not to what? When did you graduate, Amanda? In in '04, and when did you graduate, Courtney? Yeah, so they, they just barely missed each other, uh, probably. Yeah, could have been freshman senior deal if you'd been one year later. But anyway, uh, so uh, good 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 connection uh, with your staff, and uh, you all have always been so kind to me. And I appreciate that. Tonight, uh, you might be aware. The Thunder play at 8.30. So you're thinking, well, that won't affect us at all because we'll be done for long before that. But uh, one of your fine basketball coaching members, or retired uh, basketball coaching members, uh, offered us a couple of tickets to the game tonight. So I'm going to the game. And so is Dub and Jackie, and I don't want Dub to have to get up and walk out in the middle of it, so uh, I'm aware of the time tonight, Uh, but uh, anyway, so we're going to do this in an hour tonight, and if any of you doubt me, don't doubt me. All right, let's let's get going. 2 Corinthians, uh, we're at chapters 8 and 9, that's where we're going to start tonight, and if you've got your uh, structure the page marked structure or you're looking in in the notes then the handout that you have uh, I would just point you to uh, we finally get to move a major move on the on the outline we talked about on Sunday night we did the opening and the Thanksgiving we started on the body on Sunday night but just got just a little bit of that done but the last couple nights we've been working through the first part of the body the character conduct and crisis of Paul's ministry 112 through 716 that's Roman numeral one under body. We've done all I'm going to do with that. We finished as much as I can do with that last night. And now we're moving to Roman numeral two. The grace of God is motivation for showing grace to others. And this, this is a great text uh, if you wanted to encourage people to give to those who are in need or to a needy cause uh, based on grace. Be gracious to others. Uh, because God has been gracious to you. That's, that's the way the whole of chapters 8 and 9, when Paul's encouraging them to give to an offering he's taking for the church at Jerusalem. The, the motivation he uses above everything else, and he uses uh, several motivations, we're going to see them here in a moment. But at, at the heart of it all, he wants them to be gracious to the church at Jerusalem, who's suffering financially, abject poverty, in great need. He wants the church... In fact, not just this church, but his churches throughout the Roman Empire to contribute to an offering for those Jewish Christians in the church in Jerusalem. 
And he wants them to give as a show of grace and as a display of the grace that God has shown to these churches. So if you give graciously, it speaks to the grace that God has shown to you. It's a recognition that God has been gracious to you, so you are now being gracious to others. If you fail to give or you give in a stingy way, it says almost, it almost creates a picture that maybe God has been stingy to us and so we're being stingy to others. Or at least you don't appreciate the grace that God has shown. So the whole section, I've entitled it here, The Grace of God is Motivation for Showing Grace to Others. At the heart of it all, the call to give is to give as a display of your recognition of the grace that God has shown to you. Now be gracious to others. And I think that's, that's a great motivation to call people to give. You know, it might be that you're still trying to pay this off or that off, and you're trying to encourage people to give to, to do that, and, and that's, a, that's a worthy uh, motivation to pay off this building. But I, I think the highest motivation goes beyond just giving to pay off a building, to get out of debt. To, it is, I should give as a display of the grace that God has shown to me. God has shown his grace to me. He's been gracious to me. Now I'm going to be gracious as I give. So let, let's, let's kind of see if we can follow the argument here. So it begins at, it begins at chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. And ten times he's going to use the word grace in these two chapters, 8 and 9. And so he begins with uh, the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia for during, a, for during a severe ordeal of affliction. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For, as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the grace it's the second time he uses the word grace here, and I bet your translations don't translate it grace. And, and, and rightly so, I understand the, the Greek word chorus, that's the word for grace, has a range of meaning. It, it not only means grace, it can mean a variety of other things. But Paul keeps using it here, and I think there's, he wants you to hear that word over and over again because that's the, the emphasis of his giving. When you translate it like the New, Amer the New Revised Standard Version, begging us earnestly for the privilege. Okay, that's an okay word, and the word can mean that, but you lose the sight, the fact, that he's using the same word grace that he used in verse 1. It's all about grace here, being gracious because God has been gracious to you. So he says, this church, the Macedonians, they were begging us earnestly for the grace of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that, as he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this grace among you. So here's where Paul begins. I'm taking this offering for the saints. Now, if, if that's all we had, we wouldn't be sure exactly what saints he was talking about and what undertaking, what act of grace he's calling them to. But when we read Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says there that um, the church at Jerusalem asked him to remember the poor. 
to remember the poor in the church at Jerusalem. And Paul says in Galatians 2.10, that was the very thing I wanted to do. So that's kind of where it begins. And then as he goes through his churches, his Gentile-dominated churches throughout the empire, he's taking an offering from these churches to give to the poor believers in Jerusalem. So when he goes to Macedonia, Macedonia would be churches like Thessalonica and Philippi, uh, Berea. When he goes through these, these areas, he's asking them to give to this offering. He mentions it uh, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 15. When he's telling them about the visit he's going to make there, he says, now I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you and I want to go to Spain. Uh, but he says, and, but, but I'm, I'm going to leave you all or, and I'm going to take this offering to the church at Jerusalem. This is very important for Paul. And you don't get much of it in the book of Acts. One mention of it in chapter 24, verse 17. And since Luke doesn't talk much about this offering, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it's really important to Paul and we keep bumping into it in his own letters. Now, the most recent time we get it before he's talking about it here in chapters 8 and 9 is in 1 Corinthians. At the very end of 1 Corinthians, I want you to turn there to chapter 16. It's the last issue he takes up in 1 Corinthians before he gets to his conclusion. So 1 Corinthians 16.1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, you should follow the directions I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you earn so that collections need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they can accompany me. So he told these churches about a year earlier, these, these, the, the believers at Corinth, he told them, you need to get this offering taken, and I want you to do it before I arrive. Now get the thing done. The problem is they'd fallen into these problems that he's trying to address, and he had to make the painful visit, and so that had hindered their ability to get this offering taken, and so now he's saying to them, it's time to get this thing done. It's taken you a year now, and you need to finish the thing. So that's the context for all this. It's a specific offering he's taking for the, the believers at Jerusalem. He's calling them the saints. And how, what's his motivation? His first motivation is to say to these believers in Achaia, these Corinthian churches, look at the churches of Macedonia. They are suffering they are afflicted and yet rejoicing and man are they having it rough economically and yet they're begging us to let them give to the to the people in Jerusalem so you see what he's doing he's sort of leveraging those Macedonian believers against the Corinthians and saying now they're really giving and I mean they're giving they're begging us to give and of course the inference is now, what about you all? Are you going to let the Macedonians outgive you? Has God been, been more gracious to them, maybe? Or has he not been gracious to you, too? And so that's where he picks up. So beginning here at verse 7, now it's God's grace to the Corinthians. He says, now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge. What do those sound like? Faith, speech, knowledge. Don't those sound like spiritual gifts? 
how do the Corinthians do as it, when it comes to spiritual gifts? Had God given them uh, grace? Had he really poured out grace in, in, in giving them spiritual gifts? Oh, yeah. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 all deal with all the great gifts God had given them. And yet, they seem to be focusing on just a few of them, namely speaking in tongues. But it's, God's grace had been poured out on them in the giving of the spiritual gifts. And in fact, the word for spiritual gifts, one of, there's two ways of talking about spiritual gifts. You can call them gifts of the Spirit. Or the more common phrase is charismata. Now, let me say that again. Charismata. We get our word charismatic from the word. But charismata. Now, I told you a few moments ago, you might have forgotten. I'll say it again. I know, I know where you're coming from. I'm 51 now. I can't remember. What, what was that thought I had a moment ago? What was that? I'll say the word again for grace. Charis. That's just the word for grace. Here's the, the most common word for spiritual gift is charismata. So what is a spiritual gift? It's a grace gift. It's a compound word, and the first part of it is the word for grace. So that's the place Paul could point to and say, look at how God has poured out his grace on you. Look how he's gifted you in speech, like speaking in tongues, in faith, in knowledge. So God's poured out his grace on you and the gifts that he's given you and the grace he's shown you in Christ. And in, a, and in utmost eagerness and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this grace. And there's the word again. So this is the fourth time he's uses the, used the word grace in this instruction. In verse 8 he says, I don't say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. Now if you're looking for another verse to memorize from 2 Corinthians, this would be one. Again, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he made himself poor in order that by his poverty you might become rich. And notice the for your sakes. Because in 521, Paul says a very similar phrase. He says, for our sakes, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that, 521? And I said, there'd be another verse. If you wanted to memorize some verses from 2 Corinthians, that'd be another good one. These two, for our sake, for your sake. And, and so he's getting around to the grace that God has shown you one, in the spiritual gifts he's given to you, but even more than that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself poor so that we could be made rich. He's got a pretty good argument here to be gracious in your giving. And this is one of the, this is one of the great uh, stories as you think about how to talk about the story of Jesus. Everybody loves a rags-to-riches story. I mean, don't we love a story where somebody goes from nothing, where they have no advantage, maybe they live in poverty, 
and then they make something really great out of their life. We love those stories. In fact, to a large degree, we had one candidate who's now out of the presidential race, but his primary claim to you know, fame and, and got him a hearing, at least, was Ben Carson. What's the big deal about Ben Carson? Well, he's one of these rags-to-riches stories. I mean, here's somebody who came from nothing and who made something really great out of his life. We love rags-to-riches stories. Well, how about the Jesus story? Is his story a rags-to-riches story? He didn't start with rags. He started with riches. But he willingly gave them up So his is a story, riches to rags and then to riches again. His story is a riches to rags to riches. And and I'm thinking about Philippians 2, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took upon himself the form of of, of a human being. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that's the who, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, that's the riches, to rags. And then Paul says, and because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So that's the back to the riches again. The Jesus story is a riches to rags to riches, and that's an even greater story. To willingly give up riches and become the rags part of the story so that we could be rich. Now, not rich uh, monetarily, but we could be rich spiritually. This is the riches to rags to riches story that is the story of Jesus. And I, and I think this is a great verse to sort of tuck away, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And in this matter, verse 10, he says, I'm giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but to even desire to do something. Now finish doing it. What did they start it a year ago? The offering that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians written about 55. 2 Corinthians written about 56. It's been a year since he told them to finish the offering. They hadn't finished it yet. So he's just said, now just do it. This is before Nike. So that your eagerness may be matched by completed in according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I don't mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it's a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their present need. So that their abundance may be for your need in order that there might be a fair balance. Paul says, I'm not asking you, to, be, to, to give up everything for the church in Jerusalem. I'm asking you to take out of your abundance and give to someone who doesn't have enough. And, and, and that's, that's usually, I think, what you see in the New Testament. It's not that everybody should sell all that they have and pool it all together so that everybody has the same. That's not New Testament economics. But it is those who have more than they need should be willing to give up in their abundance in order to help those who do not have enough. 
It's not that everybody has the same, but it is that everybody has enough in the church. And I think that's a pretty solid principle. I mean, I, don't, I think Paul would say, how can you feel good about your abundance if you know your fellow believers in Jerusalem are starving? He's not asking them all to sell everything and pool it and all everybody have the same. But everybody in the Christian community ought to have enough. I think that's a pretty solid principle. So then he quotes a passage from Exodus 16, 18 about the manna from heaven. He says, as, is, as it is written, the one who had much did not have too much and the one who had little did not have too little. You remember how the manna worked? You couldn't, you couldn't sock it away. It was like the daily bread. Manna fell from heaven. There was enough there for your daily needs. And then it perished. It rotted. You couldn't, you couldn't preserve it. So what happens the next day? You've got to trust God to meet your needs. And there was no way that one could have too much and another could not have enough. And so this is, this is the picture that he's painting. Now, and I'm not going to read 16 through 24. I'll just briefly describe it. Now he commends the delegates that he's commissioned who are going to take the offering. Paul's not going to take it. Paul's not going to be there to pass the plate. He doesn't even want to be standing there watching when they pass the plate. Why do you think he might not want to be part of that? Remember, he's got super apostles, false brothers, false apostles, and they're making accusations against him. And it seems like one of those accusations that they're making is, he doesn't take your money, he won't take your money, but he's going to get you good on this offering that's supposedly to be for the church at Jerusalem. And I think Paul wants to have, be as, you know, separated from the taking of that offering and the carrying it to Jerusalem as he can. And, uh, and so he's going to appoint some delegates, and one of them's Titus, and he really brags on Titus here and about how you can trust him, he's not going to take advantage of you, and then two other brothers that he doesn't name. So that's what, that's what the rest of chapter 8 is. He's commending the delegates who are going to take the offering. Now let's move on to chapter 9. So if in chapter 8, the focus was on the need to take the offering, to just finish it. And then here are the delegates who are going to take it up and carry it to Jerusalem. In 9, it's now he focuses more on their need to give generously. Starting at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, it's not necessary for me to write you about the ministry to the saints. Um, for one, uh, he just talked about it. <laughs> we just had a chapter about this. And now it's like, okay, you think we're moving on to a new topic? No, not quite. Now, it's not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For the people of Macedon, uh, excuse me, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, that is, to you've not taken the offering, 
we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. Now you see what he's doing. What did he do at the beginning of chapter 8? He tried to use the generosity of the Macedonians to inspire the Achaia, the people of Achaia, the Corinthians, to give. Now, he's trying to use his bragging on the Corinthians and their generosity that he bragged to the Macedonians to motivate them because if you don't give generously, it's going to be an embarrassment to all of us because I really bragged on you to the Macedonians. So when he was in Macedonia, how did, they, how did he motivate them to give? All those Corinthians, man, they're really eager to give. Well, they're going to have that offering taken in no time, and they're really eager to give. So you Macedonians should give. And they did. Now he's talking to the Corinthians and says, you all, you need to really give because I bragged on how much you're going to give, and you've not done it yet. You see how he's leveraging one against the other. And now the, Macedon- uh, the Corinthians need to give because if you don't, it's going to be somebody from Macedonia is going to show up and they're going to say, well, they've not even given yet. Why did we give so generously? <laughs> so let's get this thing done. And, and you got to do it generously because I bragged on you. He says at verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you've promised so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not like a charge or almost like extortion. The point is this, and here's his principle of generosity. The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's a pretty solid principle of giving, harvesting and reaping. Listen to uh, what the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. Some give freely, yet grow all the richer. Others withhold what is due and only suffer want. You hear how similar that is to the principle of the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully? Let me read it again. Some give freely... And grow all the richer. Others withhold what is due and suffer want. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives water will get water. The generous person will be enriched. The one who gives freely grows all the richer. The one who fails to give finds himself in more want. That's Proverbs 11. 24 and 25 how about malachi looking ahead to next year malachi chapter 3 uh, verse 10 bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thus put me to the test said the says the lord of hosts see if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing uh, blessing doesn't that, doesn't that sound a lot like the principle that he's stating here? The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Doesn't he say that really in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8? Uh, yeah, is, uh, isn't that, is that right? He says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, or a woman, that's what they will reap. 
It's this principle of sowing and reaping. And here it is in its most bold form. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the best giving plan, the best investment plan you can possibly have is not the 401k that you're giving to at work? It's not the Roth IRA you may have invested in when they first said, you know, this isn't going to be taxed. It's not, the, it's not whatever your financial advisor, if you might have one, tells you to do. No. The best investment plan, the best retirement plan you can have would just be to give more and you can't outgive God, right? Yeah. So then your motivation can very easily become not giving because God's been gracious to you, not giving because you feel compelled to do it because you want to meet someone else's need. It's just the best financial plan going. You give for the purpose of getting rich. It's better than the lottery. Way better than the lottery. You think that's what Paul wants to encourage? Giving so that you can be rich financially? Something about that rubs me completely the wrong way and how easy is it for somebody who just wants your money to use that principle to manipulate you to give and then I can start saying man I bet there's somebody out there who's really struggling financially what you need to do is get in on this principle of sowing and reaping and if you want to make all your dreams come true financially you just give to God you can't outgive God Now, since we don't know God's address, you probably need to send the check to me. And I'll see that God gets it. You see how that seems to violate everything, I think, that the New Testament is about, and even that Paul's about, that that would be your motivation to give. So let's hear him describe it a little more, because it's easy to just use this one verse. Let's see what he says after he says this. Look at verse 7. Each of you must give as you've made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, and that's the word grace again, by the way. Here it's translated blessing in this translation, but it's the, it's the word grace again. So that by always having enough, you may share abundantly in every good work. Now, did you hear that? So that by always having enough, you may share abundantly in every good work. Is he promising riches here to you if you give? No. What is he promising? That you will have enough. Here's the principle as I understand what he's saying here. If you are a generous person, if you are willing to give generously and cheerfully... God will see to it that you always have enough to give. If you're a generous person and you give cheerfully, even abundantly, the promise is you will always have enough so that you can give. You can continue to give. Now, how's that? Is that okay? Will you still give generously if the promise is you will have enough? Is that catchy enough for you? Or does it have to be God will repay you a thousand times? God will give you riches 
in abundance financially of what you give? Is it enough for you to know you'll always have enough if you give generously? If I've always got enough to give to someone in need, that means I always have enough. And I think we all ought to be willing to live like that. And he says uh, in verse 9, as it is written, he scatters abroad. He, I think, talking here, it's Psalm 112. I think the point is the one who gives. Not, this isn't talking about God. It would be true of God. But I think here he's talking about the person who's willing to give generously. He, the one who gives, scatters abroad. He gives to the poor. His righteousness, his act of righteousness endures forever and then he concludes all this discussion about giving with his comment on this indescribable gift that God has given to us he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity which will produce thanksgiving to God through us For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, those in Jerusalem, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Why does he want them to give to this offering? Well, because the people in Jerusalem are in need, and he wants to help meet that need. But he also knows that it will result in many thanksgivings given to God. Will those... Christians in Jerusalem, those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, will they not express thanksgiving to God if, the, if Paul shows up with an offering from these Gentile churches? Won't many thanksgivings go up to God for the aid that they're rendering? And then finally, I think he wants them to take the offering because he knows what a powerful act of unity it will be for these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to receive a gift from these primarily Gentile Christians throughout the Roman Empire. You know, there's, there's constant tension between Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. And it's just cultural. I mean, you know how Jews feel about eating certain foods, eating certain meats, and it's not only the kind of meat you eat, it's the way the meat has been killed. There are lots of elements of Judaism that Jewish Christians continued to practice just because it was a cultural expression for them. The Gentiles had no interest in observing certain holidays and holy days. Many Gentiles didn't participate in that. And so there's this constant cultural tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. How do you think many Jewish Christians felt about Gentile Christians who'd never even been circumcised? When, you know, Genesis 17 says circumcision is the mark of the true people of God. There's just all these tensions there. And Paul's fighting that all the time. And one way, I think, to maybe ease some of those tensions, if these Gentile churches can give a generous offering to these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, what a show of unity that would be. He says in verse 13, Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. And it's that word grace again, probably translated thanks in your translation. Thanks be to God 
for his indescribable gift. Their generous giving will reflect the sacrifice of Jesus. If they will give a generous offering to the church at Jerusalem, it will reflect God's generous gift of Christ that was given to them. God's indescribable gift. It's one thing to talk about God's indescribable gift. It's another thing to display the greatness and indescribable nature of God's gift by giving the same way to others. By giving almost an indescribable gift to someone else's in need. It mirrors God's great indescribable gift that he has given to us in Jesus. So what's the final motivation to give here? He's used several motivations. Not the least of which is, you people better get with it because those Macedonians, they really stepped it up. Oh, and you Corinthians, you really need to give because it's going to be humiliating if you don't because I already bragged on you. So there's that motivation. But that's not his primary motivator. It is God's grace. And I think when you really get down to it, that's Paul's motivation for everything that you do. God's grace should be the motivating factor to be obedient, to live the life that God has called us to, to be his disciples. It's God's grace. You're not trying to earn God's good grace. He's already poured out his grace upon you. Now live like it. It's the highest motivation for obedience that I know. It's God's grace. And specifically with respect to giving. And giving generously to someone in need. Namely the church in Jerusalem. This church has a pretty good record of giving. And I'm not just talking about the measurables. I'm talking about how you've given to this community. And not just financially. In lots of ways. And, um, and, and it's, it's enhanced your reputation in the community. And it's been a display of God's indescribable gift. Your willingness to pour yourselves out for this community when it's been in such great need, and Jim, often the face of that, no greater display of God's indescribable gift than the gift you, this church, has has given to this community. Now, you can't just rest on your laurels, but I'm saying... You've done well in this regard. You're, you're one of the churches I go to that stands out among them as, as having displayed this, I think. And um, so that's chapters 8 and 9. It's good stuff. And um, let's go on now. You remember I did 11 and 12 on Sunday morning, right? You remember that? I read most of 11 and the sermon was 12, 1 through 10. So we're in great shape here. So when you come to chapter 10, if you're looking on your outline, the power of God and Paul's weakness. It's almost as if Paul got some information that he didn't have when he wrote chapters 1 through 9. Like like he gets more information overnight and takes a different tone when you get to 10. Because everything's so positive up to 10. 
It's like they're through all the problems for the most part. Reconciliation is on the way. They've already responded positively, positively to the letter he'd sent them, the tearful letter. Everything looks like it's on the, on the improvement, you know. Everything's positive, great Thanksgiving. But then you get to 10 and it's like, hang on now. And it's all about Paul defending himself again. And it's about his opponents. To, to the point that there are many New Testament scholars who've argued that 10 through 13 is, is a different letter. It, it was originally maybe the tearful letter or the painful letter that he mentions back there in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. That, that then somehow these letters got put together and so it looks like one letter. And lots of different theories related to that. But ultimately, I don't, I don't see the need to argue that. And you just don't have the manuscript evidence that, it, that there was ever any of these letters circulating, you know, like part of Corinthians circulating on its own. So is it possible that Paul knew from the beginning when he sat down to write Second Corinthians that he was going to express his gratitude and he was going to brag on them and be happy about things and then he was going to talk about the offering and then he was going to have to deal with the pockets of resistance that still existed at Corinth. And in my mind, that's, that's the way I understand the letter. That 10 through 13 was not some new information that he got that he decided, ooh, I better change my, my approach here. But rather, from the beginning, he knew he was going to have to deal with those false apostles, those super apostles who were still circulating there in Jerusalem. So I think that's what you get when you start at chapter 10. So 10, 1 through 11, Paul declares war. Now it's not conventional warfare. He's not going to actually take up weapons against them, but he declares spiritual war against his opponents, these super apostles. He says, I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. Now, I don't want to assume we can read too much into those comments, but that strikes me as him sort of repeating the kind of charges that are being made against him. Oh, yeah, he's bold in his letters. Oh, yeah, he sounds like a real tiger in those letters, but he's a paper tiger. He's a paper apostle. When he shows up, he loses a lot of that boldness. He's meek, mild. He says, verse 2, um, I ask that when I'm present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we're acting according to the flesh or co- according to human standards. Like Paul's ministry lacks the power of the Spirit. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. We're in a war, but it's not conventional warfare. Now, where might you go to get a little further commentary on what he's thinking about here? Maybe Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not according to the flesh. But our struggle is against powers, uh, spirit of, spirit powers of spiritual darkness in the stratosphere. Cosmic powers. That our battle is not just against flesh and blood. And then he goes on to talk about the armor of God and the weapons of warfare for this spiritual battle. You know, helmet of salvation and belt of truth and sword of the spirit. So I think if Ephesians 6 it would be a pretty good place to get a little more uh, commentary on, on the way he's thinking here about this war he's going to wage. But he does say, verse 4, 
For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. You know, like our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so fleshly weapons are not going to do the trick. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So it's the language of warfare, but it's spiritual warfare. He's not going to grab anybody by the lapel or punch them in the nose. He's not going to defeat them that way. But This is the language of tearing down strongholds of arrogance and false wisdom, of capturing the minds of these, their minds have been taken captive by these false apostles. He wants to take them back, these minds that have been taken captive, and to punish those who obey the truth. He says in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If you're confident that you belong to Christ, remind yourself of this, that just as you belong to Christ, so also do we. Now, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not tearing you down, I won't be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem as though I'm trying to frighten you with my letters. You catch the wind of maybe that's one of the charges that the opponents make that he He tries to frighten you with his letters. His letters are scary. Ooh. But in the flesh, not so much. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And I can imagine that his bodily presence was pretty weak. You you read the list of the suffering and affliction he goes through in chapter 11, that body would be beat down. That wouldn't be an impressive person to look at, look upon. And I assume that's what they're pointing to, all the suffering and look how weak he is. Boy, he's strong in his in his letters, but not so much in in the flesh. And he says, "Well, our our fight is not against flesh and we don't fight according to the flesh." Let such people understand that what we say by letter when absent, we will also do when present. That's a little bit of that. You think I'm a paper tiger? Well, I might just show up and show you I'm a real tiger. And, and, and then here are his rules of engagement, beginning here at verse 12. He says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, it's foolishness. They don't show good sense. We, however, will not boast beyond limits, but will keep within the field that God has assigned us to reach out even as far as you. For we're not overstepping our limits when we reached you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the good news of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits, that is, in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our sphere of action among you may be enlarged so that we may proclaim the good news in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in someone else's sphere of action. So he's declared war on them, not physical war, not war according to the flesh, but this spiritual war he has declared on them, and here are his rules of engagement. I will not engage with them in war by bragging on myself and comparing myself to the other apostles i won't list my credentials and then theirs and say look at me i'm better than them he said that's foolishness to just pick out a group that sure you're going to look better than them and compare yourself to them who should you be looking to who should you be boasting in whose opinion ultimately matters 
gods. And so he ends this little section by quoting a passage from Jeremiah, verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the way I'm going to fight this battle. I'm not going to list all my successes. Well, that's foolishness. You can always find somebody to compare yourself to and say, ooh, look at me, I'm better than them. But what good is that? The other rule of engagement is, I'm not going to go into someone else's field of work and start trying to take it over as my own. Now, isn't that what these apostles have done? Corinth is his field. He started this church. He's their spiritual father. They should be listening to him, and rather they're listening to these others. They've been swayed by them. Embarrassingly so. So that's how he's going to fight this battle. So he says... In verse 18, for it is not those who commend themselves that are approved, but those whom the Lord commends. So he said, it's foolishness to, to do this kind of boasting. Then look at 11.1. Now, I read this Sunday morning. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. What's the foolishness? It's boasting. So Paul's in a bit of a catch-22. To boast is foolish. But to not do any defense of himself is to allow the fools to gain the upper hand. So what's he going to do? Well, bear with me while I boast a little. Which he ends up getting around to here in chapter 11, and he really gets to it about verse 23. This is when he finally gets around to the boasting. But it's not his list of accomplishments. It's his suffering. And I read it Sunday morning. And it's almost... It just, I don't even know how to describe it because he, he just, he goes to such a great extent to list his suffering and the way he's been mistreated, not his ministry accomplishments. And, and he, he sort of gets to the next to the greatest boasting, which is what we did Sunday morning about his revelations, about this being caught up into the third heaven, paradise. But just before that, He says in verse 30, and I didn't read this on Sunday morning. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, blessed be he forever, knows that I don't lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Well, how's that weakness? This is Paul's great prison escape. The one he wants to mention here. Now, he has a pretty good one at Philippi with an earthquake. But he, he, he doesn't mention that one. He mentions this one where he was lowered down the wall in Damascus when King Aratus and the governor there was trying to get him. Now think about that. How glorious is that prison escape when you're crumpled up in a little basket and being lowered over the wall? I mean, is that a glorious escape? It's an inglorious escape. I mean, when Jesus escapes, when people want to get a hold of him, he just walks right by them, just walks right out. He just walks right away. They want to get him, and and he quietly escapes. You know, Peter, he had his big prison escape in Acts chapter 12, where an angel wakes him up, and he just walks right out, and doors are flying open. And the guards can't even see him, and he finds himself out on the street, and they didn't even see him. He just walked right out with an angel by his side. What's Paul's prison escape? 
You know, the great day of war for most warriors in the ancient world was to storm the wall. Be the first over the wall. Sword, you know, waving your sword. And here's Paul not not attacking the wall and going over it and taking the city. But even his prison escapes are weak. And then he tells the story of his being caught up into the third heaven in chapter 12. But it's not really about that. It's about the thorn in the flesh. That God allowed him to have so that he wouldn't become conceited. So even his boasting, all of his boasting ends up being about suffering. And then at chapter 12, verse 11, he says, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me, for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. (laughs) So what are they? I'm not inferior to them, and I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. How have you been worse off than other other churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Well, excuse me. And as he goes on here, it's clear the fact that Paul wouldn't charge them for his ministry. These false apostles, these super apostles are using that against Paul. Now, how exactly they're doing it, he doesn't describe, but maybe they're saying, you know, Paul's apostleship is one of the great you-get-what-you-pay-for examples. Oh, he doesn't charge you anything? That's because it's not worth anything. More likely, they're saying something like, have you seen him out sweating, making those tents, working with animal skins, making leather, different kinds of leather work, making tents? Does that look like labor worthy of an ambassador of Christ? Or they're saying something like, he won't let you give because he doesn't want you to share in his blessings. He's keeping something from you because he won't let you share in his ministry. You read on there, he says, Paul says, yeah, I've, I've taken from the Macedonians. They've been very generous. But I don't want to take your money. I don't want to be a peddler of God's word. I'm not selling the gospel. And uh, so he, he says, I'm coming for a third visit. And uh, I'm not going to start taking your money when I get there. Even though I'm being attacked because of it. And then at 13.1, he won't take their money, but he will take their repentance. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Any charge must be sustained by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned previously and all the others. And I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit. You know that tearful, that painful visit. That if I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you desire proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful in you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but in dealing with you... We will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're living in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet that test. A little bit of a... You need to examine yourself. If Christ is not in you, where does that leave you in your relationship with God? I hope you will find out that we've not failed... 
But we pray to God that you may not do anything wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. This is what we pray for, that you may become mature. So I write these things while I'm away from you, so that when I come, I may not have to be severe in using the authority that the Lord is giving me for building up and not for tearing down. So he ends with a little bit of a warning. If you think that painful visit was bad, you just keep on refusing to repent. You keep on listening to these false apostles. And I may have to come again, or I am coming again, and it might not be as you'd wish or as I'd wish. And then he concludes, Finally, brothers, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. It could not be more unifying, the things he's calling them for there. Even the live in peace, agree with one another, and the God of love and peace be with you. This is a church given to division. He's asking for peace. And then the blessing. I've asked it on it, in every session, I've ended with this blessing. I always end with a blessing, and we couldn't get a better one than we have right here at the end of Second Corinthians, and he asks this blessing on them, and I'll ask it on you tonight uh, as a conclusion. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.